How's it going, everybody? On this episode, I'm going to be talking with my buddy Larry Helmers. On the way back from New York, when we were up there trying to track down deer, I stopped at my buddy Larry's and worked there for a couple days. And just throughout the days while I was there, we were having a bunch of conversations about what we had been seeing in the last couple seasons and this season when hunting deer in hill country. So it was just fun to talk with him to get a different perspective and just see kind of what theories came about from these conversations. So eventually I decided, hey, we should probably just start recording some of this and make a podcast out of it. So this podcast is mostly focused on hill country and some of the strategies that we've put into place that we would like to change in the future and some of the things that we would like to try differently to see if there's some different results. There's been some consistent things that we've seen when we have success in hill country that we don't always do when we're not successful. But before we get into the podcast, I wanted to remind you guys that we've partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media's censorship. Go Wild is a free social community where not only are your photos not censored, they're encouraged on Go Wild. Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. As you earn points, you unlock awesome rewards too, such as gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts on different brands, and if you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. All you gotta do is visit downloadgowild.com to get started. All right guys, let's talk with Larry about Hill Country Tactics. This conversation that we're about to have has been an ongoing conversation for Larry and I um, for like, what at least well definitely over 24 hours we've been just on and off talking about hill country bedding and some of the examples that we've been seeing and just to kind of elaborate on a little bit of what Aaron and Greg and Ted and I talked about um, on the episode I think it was like overlooked or potential bedding in hill country or something like that I don't even really remember what the title was some of the things that Larry and I have been talking about are along those same lines, but also how to approach some of these different situations and some of the things that we've done probably wrong in the past. Not to say that some of the things that we've done haven't worked, but there's kind of a progression here and there's a lot of things to be learned from the habitat, from the pressure to, you know, how we're going to approach it and some of the things that we're going to change. And it's been really good for me at least to like be able to talk to you and listen to your experiences. So I think to start, why don't you just start with telling that story, give a little bit of background on that buck, the spot. And, and um, I think that'll help us kind of learn, you know, get the ball rolling of what we've been learning, how we've been putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And then I'll kind of explain my progression that I said last night where it's like we kept making the mistakes. I was feeling frustrated, and I feel like I'm now finally able to put some words to the mistakes. Yeah, so for anybody listening to this, just context, we're talking a lot of mature, undisturbed timber, so pretty open. I mean, mm-hmm. We've been talking the last 24 hours how much these bucks actually have a visual advantage. You're in the timber, but mm-hmm. we're talking timber that you can see, what, three, 400 yards yeah. easily. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because some of the timber has such little disturbance, there's always not a ton of understory or a ton of habitat mm-hmm. that has them pinned into a specific spot. A lot of times it's the visual advantage. And I think we've been learning how much some of those older bucks are using that. Yeah. 
So I just got done hunting with our buddy Ben, um, a couple of the other guys here in Ohio for gun week, four or five days. And we trucked it around this same public land piece that we've been doing the muzzleloader hunts the last few years in. So we got another good four or five days of experience in there. And we had one really cool encounter combined, Zach. How many days of experience do we have hunting just that specific? It's weeks and weeks and weeks oh, now. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, it originally started in, I think, the original like trips into that were 2018. It's fascinated all of us. We've had some good success. It's getting mm-hmm. better, but mm-hmm. the area has quality deer. Mm-hmm. Some bucks are getting this older age class, even in this like not amazing habitat. Like I said, a lot of it's huge timber. There's just not a ton of cover. Mm-hmm. And I think we've been just trying to figure out how these bucks are like utilizing these huge pieces, avoiding all these people, but ending up in these same little specific spots. I think this is important to note though. While this is you know, one area in one state, there's tons and tons of habitat just like this. Anywhere from Alabama, Georgia, all the way up to the far Northeast, I've encountered the same type of habitat, very, very similar open woods. And I've been getting more experience in those places, not only deer hunting them, but I'm constantly scouting when I'm turkey hunting and I really like turkey hunting those areas. They're not also always the best to turkey hunt because open timber is the same. You know, you run into the same problems with turkey. It's not the best habitat, so there's not always the most birds there. But I find myself in those big, unbroken, you know, mountainous or hilly terrain type of areas a lot. And I think the reason that we're talking about this is just continuing to try to apply these different ideas and things that we're learning along the way to, you know, somebody else in a similar situation. And that may be in a different state completely, but honestly, the habitat is very, very similar. I mean, the habitat and the terrain are similar in Arkansas too. I've seen the same thing. I've seen Mm -hmm. it, you know, I've seen it on a map in Oklahoma, Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of everywhere. So that's why I like talking about these things. But anyway, go ahead, Larry. Yeah. So I think it was interesting, kind of a, in our discussion, our progression, the last day, since you've been here, we were talking about this buck that got shot on my farm and it was crazy. So this was Wednesday of our Ohio gun season. And it's crazy. It's one of the first places we did a little bit of habitat work and some tree thinning in there. So that's, that's definitely influenced the understory in this spot. But what was crazy is this buck, which was, we were pretty sure a good five-year-old buck, multiple years of history, been hunting this thing hard all season. I've bumped, I've bumped him. Um, he's winded us a couple times. I think I've literally gotten busted by this deer three times this season. (laughs) Well, uh, for starting Sunday afternoon, everyone got it, got down to my place, was camping, splitting wood, carrying wood, hitting the portage on where that buck was bedded (laughs) on Wednesday afternoon of gun was straight up in eyesight. He was looking right down at our whole camp. You know, we're talking a five-year-old buck. Yep. So, and, and you're, and also, it's important to note he's only what 150 yards up the hill you said like yeah. tops yeah yep now he would have been so like you mentioned a minute ago we got a lot of these side hill benches kind of big long ridges you know maybe a couple hundred yards to the top maybe 100 some yards up 125 to the first bench and usually a big prominent bench and then you know an additional that upper part of the ridge and this one would have been on that upper part um, kind of on a finger coming down, um, just kind of tucked off one of the sides into some thicker cover. There was like some blackberry and stuff like that. And it, and I think it's also important to note, if you want to learn the details of how this habitat was created, we have another podcast with, I guess it was you, Ben and Keith. Yep. 
talking about all the projects that you guys have done on this property. So if you are in the same boat too, or you have a small property, go back and listen to that to hear the details of how, the, how this was created, because this is a direct result of that habitat work is all of a sudden you've got this big buck on there, which is pretty sweet in itself but yeah it's been cool to see the progression now we have like different generations of bucks that are really getting into these predictable spots but when i first got that place this little spot there would be sheds occasionally up there from past years and that was even when the habitat was pretty poor Mm -hmm. and it goes back to the point of is are they using that little spot because they can keep tabs on where everybody else is at and then kind of translating that over to like where we've been hunting on the public land down there Mm -hmm. so yeah, Wednesday afternoon, a gun, uh, we were kind of getting everybody into position and our buddy Mike's sliding up this little trail, which is leaves camp. I mean, he was just literally strolling right out of camp, um, got up into what would be like a side drainage. So there's a main, main Creek bottom. This was up a side drainage and that fingers what's coming, you know, coming down between the two of those. As soon as Mike got back into that little side drainage, we, we cut a little chainsaw trail a few years ago. So he, Mike's just kind of walking up a trail, looked up there, basically whether that buck was sleeping or how in the world Mike slipped up there. Maybe it was just the tall understory. The, the buck couldn't quite see where Mike was. The mm-hmm. buck was straight up, could see from his bed to our full camp, I mean, mm-hmm. to the port portage on and everything. <laughs> but anyways, Mike's sliding up that trail, and all of a sudden this buck just casually stands up. Mike gets a pretty clear shot. I'm sure he was it, – it's a big deer that we've been all after, so I'm sure he got just pumped up when he saw buck this thing. fever. Yeah, buck fever. Uh, and he had my gun which was, you know, he'd, I don't think he'd ever shot it. It was a sighted-in gun, and Mike's certainly a capable shooter, so we don't know exactly what happened. But Mike gets a shot, and the buck runs just a couple yards, stops again. Mike's trying to get on him. You know, there's there's some stuff in the way, like shooting across this ditch. It's not like mountain-to-mountain. Mountain. It's it's a tighter drainage, 100, 150 yards across. But we've kind of thinned out the mid-story on both sides. So you can shoot from one side of the ditch to the other. Mike takes a follow-up shot. The buck, oddly enough, goes just a few more yards, stops again. Mike gets a better rest, takes like a final shot. So he, know, he knows he hits hit the deer. Um, deer went to the top of the ridge line, was kind of standing. Unfortunately, he was kind of acting like maybe he was gut hit and kind of tail wagging. And unfortunately, as well, Mike runs out of shells because it's my gun. I gave him like three shells <laughs> just by – we were all exhausted. I've been hunting hard and just, you know – if you, go, if you loan your buddy a, a gun in gun season, don't leave him with three shells. I mean, <laughs> lesson I'm, learned. Yeah, I'm thinking five minimum, yeah. five or six. You know, th- a three is our, in Ohio. We can only carry three. But gosh, give your buddy a couple extra well, shells. I will say, I will say, I always overload. Like, what? Why not? Like, even with my bow, I've started carrying five arrows. Mm-hmm. The odds are that, you know. 99% of the hunts that I'm on ever in my life, I won't need five arrows, mm-hmm. but that one time I do, you know what I mean? Like oh, just, yeah. It just never hurts, which I mean, it's, it's not, uh, not to say that, you know, I haven't made that same mistake before. Cause I certainly have, but it's like, you make those mistakes and then in the future, it's like, okay, like six, eight, 10, who cares? Give them the whole box. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like at that point, because when that does happen, it's like, oh, duh. Like you never want it to happen. Again. Yeah. You never want it to happen again, but lesson learned and move on. Yep. So Mike watches this buck just slowly stroll. He's up on the top of the Ridge and then slowly kind of disappears out of sight. And he dropped back down, got a hold of us. We were actually going to a, the other side of the block and, uh, we, I get back over there. I meet up with him, get some shells. We kind of had everybody else, based on what happened, we got everybody else kind of into position. We assumed the buck was hit pretty hard. You know, we, we wouldn't have really known different because mm-hmm. Mike had a pretty good opportunity. 
So we kind of set up on the area trying to think, okay, let's get Mike in there. Let's try to go up there and finish this thing. And Mike started sliding into where he saw him last, got him some more shells, obviously. And uh, we had had everything covered back on the back of this ridge. Like as if like a lot of our drives we've done for muzzleloader, like we, were, we thought we were just going to get up there. We had the back, the next ridges over covered. Guys could see down in there. Well, I kind of had like a hunch. There was like one spot where this buckhead was actually bedded. Again, that was close to that bench on the ridge. Mm-hmm. Would have been just below him. But as luck would have it, the buck went on top, came back down towards his bed on that same kind of top of to like contour line, basically. Mm-hmm but around the next finger and in a bowl right there. Mm-hmm. So I just know the the habitat and the property pretty well. So I thought I would just, you know, kind of get up to where Mike was, get in the shells and then kind of slip back down almost to where the buck was and get around those couple fingers just to kind of watch. I, there's a big valley on my, that goes right through the middle of my place. So I thought maybe I could see and just kind of make sure nothing was over there. Well, it just gets even more interesting because I loaned Mike my gun Mike had loaned his buddy a gun, who someone we were trying to get into hunting. Mm-hmm. It was his first deer hunt, uh, Vince. Mm-hmm. You probably know Vince. I know Vince, yeah. So Vince had Mike's gun. Mike had my gun. I had no gun. Well, you had no buck tag. Right. I don't have a buck tag either. And just the whole situation, it, I don't think it ever sits good with anybody when you, know, you shoot a buck and it doesn't go down. There's, it's just going to be ugly for everybody involved. But as I'm slipping onto that bench down to where that buck was, I kind of was coming around. It was on the bench, so halfway up this ridge, and there was another ridge finger that came down. I, I've liked to do this in the past, use those like little knobs, because mm-hmm. it's this you know, piece of topography that's in front of you, and like you, you coined the term, the new world. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're coming around these fingers, you can look into wherever you're going, and you get a really clean look. You're not disturbing much. You haven't mm-hmm. stomped in there, but then you can all of a sudden see it. See, the, and what I mean by the new world is... It's a different part of the landscape that you can now see. So if you're coming around a finger in your mid slope, you can now see into, you know, quote unquote, new world. And when that happens, you know, there's always a chance that you're going to just be right on top of something. And whether you're deer, turkey, elk hunting, the more experience I get hunting in, you know, any sort of terrain, that's like the number one most important thing that allows you know me or whoever I'm filming to like get an opportunity it seems more mm-hmm. and more times it's just like man like we would have never even got that thing if we weren't prepared you know keeping eyes up entering this new world mm-hmm. but anyway so I as I'm slipping around that finger I just, I was kind of peeking in there. I sort of know, again, the habitat pretty well. So I kind of knew where to look just in case. And there's just one little thick spot in the in this little bowl. And as I came around the corner, I spotted his, his antlers. Um, he was bedded um, facing the top of the ridge. And I see his antlers kind of bobbing. And I realized what he was, he was licking, you know, mm-hmm. where he was probably shot. So I was kind of watching him for a few minutes. I had no gun. I had no like cell phone service. I mean, I didn't when I, even if I did, I don't know that I would call my, Mike. Right. I, we, we had a plan. We were going to try to keep this buck kind of contained. We thought he was much you know, more wounded than what it turned out. Maybe he was. So I'm kind of standing there, I actually closed some, some distance on him, um, just to kind of alter my position to where I thought when he would you know jump out of this bed, that he would be going right into everybody else. I mean, it was completely covered. We had like six guys set up where we thought this thing was going to, you know, bail or whatever. And so I got close enough that I was like, okay, he's kind of, I'm in containment mode here. I'm going to just crunch a couple sticks and get him up and get him moving right into this, this area, or at least see what the heck's going on where this thing's hit. 
Well, he jumped, got get up close to him, step on the stick. He, he bust up out of there and then does this weirdest little squirt. As opposed to going into where everybody else was, he stayed on that side bench. And it was almost just like the, well, for one, it's flat. So he could run that. But then the direction he went was around the next finger, that next like he knob. he kind of wraps around. Yep. He kind of just puts terrain between you and him and he just gets out of there. Yep. Yep. And then so as he's peeling out of there, as he's rounding that, I'm running, trying to just keep eyes on him. He kind of disappears and goes down to this huge ditch, but where he ended up, he ended up bailing off the whole ridge eventually. Um, so he took a couple moves, staying really tight to that ridge. When he bailed from that bed, I saw him. He was still on the ridge, but then eventually he rounds the corner. I think, I don't know if he saw our other buddy, Vince, down there mm-hmm. or whatever, but he did not want to go into that whole area for whatever reason. And he, at that point, bailed off the ridge. I, I kind of had like some, uh, I'd seen him a couple times earlier in the season just the direction he ended up going, I think was part of his core range. Mm-hmm. So he went to an area in his range on, on a neighbor's that has it's a reverted nasty field, thick, thick cover. I think at that point, the pressure was on to where he's like, I'm going there. Yeah. Um, anyways, he bails off the ridge, totally dumps down, runs up like a, uh, kind of like crosses over a finger on the other side. And then, you know, he's, he's gone essentially. So the, then the short of it on that, on that buck, um, was it, it would have been the, 20, the next day. Yeah, the next day we got a hold of this guy all the way over in Indiana, um, who is an in- absolutely incredible, uh, you know, has a tracking dog. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the type of the dog, but this guy does a lot of training. You know, he actually teaches other handlers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he helped me recover a buck. He helped another buddy of mine recover a buck. Um, he comes all the way from Indiana. What's to, his name? Uh, Al Sherman. Yep, he's got it's Dat Spotted Tracking Dog. Uh, he's got like a Facebook page mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, just a really cool professional guy. Um, so he comes out the next day. He's confident because I thought, you know, I think this buck's hitting the guts. Um, Which a lot of times tracking dogs say that's like the easiest one to find. Yeah. He thought he was minus the hills that he said he was not looking forward to climbing with us. <laughs> he was uh, he was pretty stoked. But so when his dog got there, um, we got up to the shot location. It, it ended up just the whole thing was kind of wild with this dog is a super experienced tracking dog, like years of experience, number of tracks. The, the handler, all he does is track. So this dog is like a pro, mm-hmm. but we ended up getting him on, onto the track and he, he pulled like strong on this track. Like I couldn't even keep up. Mike was following, uh, Al and, uh, we actually had killed a doe along the track, uh, a couple days prior, uh, Ben's brother, Alex shot this doe and literally like killed the doe and we like drug her out or whatever. And this buck crossed that track. So we told the handler of that and he's like, oh, he's like, oh, it's going to be hard. He's like, that's going to add a, well, did that buck once he had, uh, or the dog once he had that buck's like ID or whatever, he went right over that other track. <laughs> that's Never even sweet. batted an eye to where like I was like running trying to keep up with those guys. So I'm thinking this is this is pretty sick. Now we're mm-hmm. on like a clean part of the track. You know, optimism was coming back. So anyways, this buck went to just some of the heavier cover probably in the area besides my place. Um, got up into this just nasty field when we actually were a little unsure. Like we're like the handler was kind of like doubting because there wasn't much sign wasn't much and blood. that's an and that's a neighbor he goes to a neighbor that you have like a relationship with and yep. permission and yeah. everything right yeah 100 just, just for people listening <laughs> so they're not like larry just ran on the neighbor's property with a dog yeah <laughs> no, yeah we had full permission to go up there um, but anyways we got into like some crawling through this nasty reverted field stuff and we ended up you know we were a little unsure the handler was even unsure but i was like kind of hanging back walking watching his dog and i've um i've been around his dog a couple other times one other time in particular and like I was kind of watching clues 
Al is kind of sucking some wind uh, as we're going up and down these hills. And I'm like, dude, I think he's on it. Al was unsure. But eventually we found like one or two specks of blood. And yeah. then we knew that dog still had that track. Mm-hmm. But we do this crazy, crazy loop, which ends up uh, ironically coming right back through all these little different spots. We've done different habitat projects. This buck just came through all of them. We'd find a speck of blood, a speck of blood. Just sticking to the heavy cover. Yep. Sticking to cover and just bebopping through there. He goes behind one of my main trail cameras I have on my place. Yeah, I like as, as opposed to in front of it, he <laughs> takes the dumbest little move because he hadn't been on that camera since like October. He went behind in this like six or eight foot little gap between a fence row dumb and this tree. or smart move. Yeah. Smart. 100%. <laughs> dumb, goes, for, dumb for your camera yeah, collection. Photo, yeah. Photo collection. <laughs> felt, felt like an idiot. But he goes behind that, that camera and then starts looping back to where he was shot in the first place. Yep. The original place, the dog, that was like the last place the dog, the dog was going up there. We knew the buck wasn't in there. So at that point, we believe the buck doubled all the way back through to truly that, that was his like, and this year after hunting that deer, that was probably his, like one of his primary beds up there. And for good reason, like I said, mm-hmm. he's got that visual advantage. He knows as soon as you guys pull in there on a, you know, cause like you don't live on the property. That's mm-hmm. important to note, but you, yep. you guys, you know, have all of your, like, that's your starting point is that bottom that he can see the barns down there. You guys pull like trucks and campers and stuff down in there, right? Yep. Tents. Yeah. And like, that's kind of like the centralized spa. That's where you, that's your starting point. Yeah. It's like for, for us point A yeah. every time. Yeah. So it definitely makes you wonder, it's like, does he, or just historically do bucks love that spot? Cause they absolutely are watching everything. Well, Pretty, pretty high likelihood, in my opinion. Now that we've put some habitat there, it's even just they're even more mm-hmm. glued in there. But anyway, that buck went up onto that same ridge. And uh, we at that point, we're like, well, we know he's not in there. And this is a two and it was a two and a half mile loop on, on the GPS. So at that point, we're like, you know, we definitely have put in our, our effort here. And as luck would have it, like it would have been this was like Wednesday. Yeah, I think it was like Wednesday of gun or something. Sunday afternoon, we did one last check in the area, more or less looking for the deer, but we kind of had some people set up uh, doing kind of like a little push just to kind of see more or less. We were checking to see if we'd find him dead or something. Mm-hmm. And the buck goes right, right by my neighbor who's out on his property. Mm-hmm. So we did this little push through and we push him through and he says he couldn't even tell he was hit. Well, we know he was hit. There was blood. There was some kind of weird matter in that first bed where I found him. But needless to say, he's alive for right now. So we're all optimistic. It's not, it honestly sounds like it's non-lethal to me. Mm-hmm. And with a gun, you'd think that, you know, if it didn't get in there. and I, I mean, with a gun, if it's going to get into the chest cavity, it's you more than likely would have jumped him, I think, again with, with the dog if he was hit. That hard. Like gut shot or something. Yep. I bet he just got skimmed on the back. I bet it's like the same thing that happened with the one that I hit in Minnesota this season with the mm-hmm. bow. Mm-hmm. Maybe even less of a hit though, too, yeah. where it's like, you know, could have just grazed him high in the neck or on the shoulder or right above the spine and the back straps. Like, it's just crazy what they can take. I mean, yep. big, big old buck like that can just take it. It's yep. crazy. Especially, I mean, if it doesn't get into the, if it doesn't get into any organs, <clears throat> it's not going to kill him. Yep. Yeah. Aside from infection, but even that, yeah. like, honestly, like you've said, you've been showing me trail camera pictures of like does and stuff that you know, like buddies have hit too high with their bows. And it's like, here are these shots that look like they're right in there. Like as far as, you know, comparing it to a 3d target, like good shot, 
they are good shots it looks it appears but and they're alive a, a month later doing yeah. deer stuff and there's a lot of room for air high i mean not to we could go on and on and on about that i think that's a topic that i would like to you know dive into more we won't on this one but you should get al on here yeah he would, he would do one with you dude's been on so many the number of tracks and stuff and his data that he mm-hmm. keeps you got to get al on here for yeah that one. that'd be cool yeah and also greg and i have talked about here in the future talking about just shot placement and how to avoid that because it's a hard thing to avoid and i honestly had to learn a lot of things different it's like forward and low forward and low forward and low you know like that's that's the mistake that i think a lot of us make is we just hit too high and and deer don't do you any favors because their tendency is to load up to run therefore dropping their vitals lower yet and when you're aiming too high already it makes for a tough a tough uh tough situation because you're just bound to hit them high when that's the case but regardless you know gun bow whatever if it doesn't get into the chest cavity or hit any organs it just ain't gonna do anything to them so it's good to know though that that was wednesday mm-hmm. all the way to sunday and he's still moving honestly he's probably fine yeah i mean aside from infection again which yep. I, I still think is probably pretty low odds i don't I mean, it happens, but I think they're more likely to get infected by getting gouged or, you know, gored by another buck where they've got these dirty tines. Like you're talking about a clean arrow or a bullet. Those things are clean. I don't think that, I I mean, not to say, not to say, I mean, I'm also, I'm also not biologist Zach over here, so I don't know exactly how all that works, but it definitely seems like they, they can handle that pretty well and recover for the most part. So it will be really interesting to see, you know, if he shows up on a camera or if you guys get another visual on him here the rest of the season. Um, it's just going to be really cool. Sheds, stuff like that. See when he sheds. Mm-hmm. I think that might tell you a lot, too, if he's going to make it through. Because, like, yep. if, he, if he sheds, like, here in the next couple of weeks, maybe it's like, ooh, maybe he's not doing so good. But if yep. he holds him all the way into late January, yep. like, which is typical, you know, he probably is fine. But I, we'll, okay. we'll find out. Yeah. He, he was a resident at that point. I mean, he was real local in like, like I said, multiple years now of kind of not that we were like passing him or anything in the past. So he was like, I said, this would be, he'd be five. I'm pretty sure a five-year-old buck now, but that same pattern and stuff, it's really materialized to where, boom, there he was <laughs> mid gun week. And I think that the interesting takeaways are one, like you've stated many a times, he can see everything. Two, he doubled right back to it when you were using the tracking dog, which is confirming that he is, in fact, doing it. It's not just a guess. Mm-hmm. It's like... Yep, he was there for a reason. He definitely went back there. Yep, he'd been know. pressured all season, like mm-hmm. hard, like mm-hmm. literally busted three times, and he was still right yep. there watching. Yeah, <laughs> and that's... You know, man, it's like, how many times do you hear or hear the question or hear it stated that, like, you're going to ruin it, you're going to blow him out of there? Are you? Maybe sometimes, but like, I truly think most times, no, you're not. I think you might be right. I yeah. think especially if they like that spot, they keep winning. He yeah. wins every time. Yep. When you talk about busting him, he wins. Yeah. You know, that's good yep. in his mind. Like, I don't think yeah. he sees that as failure. I don't think he thinks that as like, oh crap, like I'm, I almost lost it there. He's like, man, I got away. Yeah. That worked. Yep. Success. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that, you know. I think I think it's I think it's a lot a lot of the specifics too. Like I think there's a difference between a guy strolling up there and gun hunting 
like that's an intruder that is mobile. You know, if you go in there and you cut a whole bunch of huge shooting lanes and you put up a big ladder stand and you put trail cameras all over it and a lot of people in the state that we grew up in, Ohio, like their bait. You know, if you do all those things, I, yeah, you're going to drive them out of there. Like, I don't think that that's a good strategy at all. The best strategy is to continue to sprinkle the hunts in there when you got the conditions that are going to allow you to do it. But don't be afraid to keep hunting it throughout the year. Yep. I don't think you want to bang it up every single day, day in, day out, day in, day out. Because, yeah, I think that eventually will run them out of there. But if, like, in your situation, you can only hunt, you know, down there... A lot of times during the weekend, maybe once a couple times throughout the week or like on a longer vacation. It's like as long as you're sprinkling that around, like if you got two days to hunt in the weekend and both days have good conditions to hunt where you think he's at right in his bedding area and you want to get aggressive, I don't think two days in a row is going to hurt anything. Yep. I think nine in a row yep. <laughs> might hurt something. but So actually, I think he got us four times this year prior to Mike getting him on the fifth time. I just remembered another time I let a buddy and his father-in-law go in for that buck. And when they were accessing that area going in in the morning, they were trying to hunt that bedding area where he was at. Um, they were slipping up there and they smelled a heavy, you know, dominant buck. Mm -hmm. Well, I smelled that buck cause he, I, he picked me off in a stand, um, back in October and I smelled him like that's a, you know, rutted up mature buck. And my <laughs> buddy smelled him. So that's actually four times on that, like right in where he's at prior to Mike five times. Do you think that, um, well, first off, I, this is something I was going to say <laughs> for those that don't know, Larry is the most generous landowner of all time now don't go don't go knocking on his door asking him for permission necessarily <laughs> but like you let so many buddies just stomp around on your property is so awesome and the bucks are still there because you guys made the habitat improvements i think that's i mean it's so cool how you have this property that you're so sharing of it is super cool to me man like I, that's i i I respect that a lot because well, it's all part of the experiment. So look how we've put all this pressure and us sitting here today, even looking at this going Wednesday of gun week, mm -hmm. this Joker was still there and still watching everybody who'd been camping. Like mm -hmm. tell me that's not telling of either mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the topographical feature that it's that prominent or just combination of the habitat that's there too. I think that's, what's probably really allowing that buck to stay in there. I think historically they would use it no mm -hmm. matter what the, to the topographical feature but the fact that he stayed in there, like I said, the understory is probably like five, five to seven foot blackberry and saplings. Mm -hmm. We just thinned it out, uh, thinned like the mid story out, which just kind of supercharges anything that's in the understory. Mm -hmm. And now it's been like three years now. Yep. So that's, it's kind of even if uh, there's a term, Ben's probably talked about it maybe on the podcast, but shelter woods, it's a yep. common like forest management technique that they do and hardwoods. You've got like oak timber, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like a simulated shelter wood except we haven't burned or anything like that. So kind of whatever was in that understory originally, we just got sunlight to it. We haven't burned there. We just let it kind of blow up and it's pretty nasty. I mean, I've treated rows in there. And, and Keith killed that buck there, right? And yep. like a, yep. what, at least a four-year-old eight-pointer? Yep. Pretty much, I would assume he was getting ready to hook darn near into the same, one of the same beds. So like I was, I was asking, maybe it was before we were recording, but do you feel like, whether this is something you've seen or is just a prediction, do you think that they're going to continue to bed there to the point where it's going to be like 
kind of cherry picking at a certain point where it's like, okay, I know that he's using this bed. I know this is how I want to hunt it. And I'm going to pick this perfect condition. And you're going to like know the day that's the kill day for that spot. Like, you a, feel like, like, a, that's, like a perennial buck yeah, bed with different bucks. Perennial as, buck bed with a mature buck in it every year. Because like, honestly, well, it's appearing to be that that's just continuing to happen. Because like this one that, that Keith killed was two years ago Mm -hmm. which would have been what 2020 and you guys did that work in the winter of 18 uh let me think here i i would say i was either 18 or 19 it's been at least three if not for that area four growing seasons now Mm -hmm. yeah so you guys are seeing bucks bed in that spot and again i think the three things that come to my mind and this is never seeing it other than on a map, which is so stupid. I just get like, <laughs> I talk about this property with you guys so much. I still never been there. It's got the terrain feature, like looking at it from a topo perspective, that just makes sense. Mid slope kind of has the opportunity to bed up on like a little point or in that bowl. And maybe he shifts a little bit based off of subtle wind changes, different times of the day. But also, with that terrain feature, he's able to see, he's able to get the visual, and now, like you said, with the habitat change, he's got the brows, he's got the cover to where you can't see him. Like, here's a question for you. If he can see you, mm-hmm. could you stand down there at that barn and put a spotter on that spot and pick him out of there? Uh, probably. You probably could. It's just weird when he's in that like blackberry and high stemmy he stuff. He just disappears in it. But if you're in it looking down the hill, you know, if you stand up or whatever, it's a totally different. Like when I was up there and looked down from where he was bedded, I was like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. he's literally watching us hit the portage on. Like yeah. he can see all that, like where everybody's parked and everything. So could you pick him out from that spot up? It would be harder, but you almost could sit in a lawn chair, you know, and just sit there and wait till he flicks his ear or something. Exactly. And honestly, yep. He's probably moves around in there, feeds a little bit. So yeah, surely, he probably surely. could. And that's, what's crazy is how we've kind of been slowly creating that. We're realizing it's like one day, I think we can just sit, sit in the barn door in the chair. <laughs> Sounds so boring. Yeah. <laughs> but like, Hey, it'd be kind of cool. Yeah. But basically what it's kind of turning into. Well, you wouldn't, you probably personally, well, just knowing how you like to hunt and all of, you know, this friend group that we talk about and that our friend group that hunts in Ohio, we wouldn't want to shoot every last buck that way. But if somebody did it here and there, it would be, yeah, still cool. But I guess taking this to like a public land setting or just, you know, different types of habitat and kind of how we've learned from this experience and what we've been elaborating on and I guess all of the above. I have been struggling in my bow hunting strategy, especially my bow hunting strategy in the big unbroken hill country, big timber hill country. And I feel like kind of what I've been explaining to you and Ben and Keith in the last couple of years is we've, we kept making mistakes and it was like the same story every time we'd get back, you know. I'd get back and I'd have the same story that Ben would and Keith would have the same story as me, Alex, same as me. And it kind of got to a point where it was like, I'm getting seriously fed up with a mistake that we, it feels like we're not trying to find an answer to. And I guess 
I finally feel like I'm starting to put a little bit of it together to where I can talk about the mistake a little bit and make sense of it. And I maybe have done this on the podcast before, but I don't think it hurts to hit it home. I mean, the more times I even say it to myself, I know it's helping me. So maybe it's helping somebody else out there too. Maybe everybody else is further along and knows this is true, but I had to like kind of re I'm having to relearn how to hunt buck bedding or bedding areas in this type of terrain because it's different than what I've hunted in the past. A lot of the stuff that I've hunted in the past, while it may be hill country, it's just generally denser. So while the property that you own is hill country and very comparable as far as terrain, you know, the change in elevation, all that, it's thicker because you guys have done that habitat work. And a lot of the other pieces of public land that I've hunted in Ohio when I was younger or like like prior to THP, prior to Midwest Whitetail, all that, a lot of those places I hunted in Ohio were thicker. When I hunted my grandpa's property growing up, it was thicker, hill country, but thicker. And then places like Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, when, when deer are bedding out in those, you know, those states that are further west of here, a lot of times they're bedding in super dense cover where they can't see anything, or they're bedding in really open cover where you can see them. It's like one extreme or the other, right? So like some of the times that I've stalked bucks in like Iowa, they've just been bedded out on the edge of like a river or something where I can just actually see them laying there. Same thing in Nebraska, same thing in the Dakotas, whatever not exclusively, but it's either one or the other. They're in the open or they're down in the dense thick where you can't see them and they can't see out. So I explain it like I always cross my hands in front of my eyes. That's what it seems like a buck bed's in. It's just grass and thick and brush in front of him. And when he does that, his defense changes. It's no longer a visual defense. And he may vary where he beds based off conditions, just like we change our hunting strategy based off conditions. If it's a calmer day and he beds in that dense stuff where he can't see anything out of the bed, his defense changes to listening and trying to smell danger. So I think of it like if I'm a buck and I'm bedded in cattails, for example, I can't see anything. You know, I can maybe see like two, three feet at best. And I know that if I hear something coming, I'm going to be able to hear it quickly and I'm going to be on high alert and I'm going to wait and listen and try to make my decision of how to escape once I know, you know, where, what that is and where it's coming from. Same thing goes for like a CRP field. He can't see anything, but he can hear stuff coming from a long way away. A human, a hunter especially most hunters are probably going to make too much noise. And then same thing goes for like a clear cut in um, big timber settings or like select cuts like on your property. It's the same deal. When they lay down in there, you know, their vision kind of gets covered up a little bit. In, in the situation on your property, he can still see out of the edge of that. But, you know, generally speaking, if you're in dense cover, they just can't see where... On the other hand, all of a sudden I'm hunting these areas that are these big, open, monotonous timber stands. And when I was learning to hunt buck bedding, what I was doing is, is I was picking a spot on the map that I had either 
seen a buck bed in or was anticipating a buck bedding in. And then I was just always going as tight to that as possible. And I felt like I had tuned into how to take my time enough to sneak tight to that. So it, you know, ideally, you know, he's in there, whether it's you watch him go in there or you actually watch him bed down. And if that's the case, I always feel the most confident in those situations because you know that you can, if you are tuned in enough and you have the patience, you know you can take your time. Even if it takes you all day, you can get in there tight to it. Sometimes you can get 100 yards. Sometimes you can get closer. Sometimes you can get 150 yards. But whatever that may be, the goal was always to get tight, 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 tight. And because of learning about hunting these different bedding areas from like Dan and, um, you know, just applying our own experiences to you know, future strategies, it was always like, yeah, let's get as tight as possible. That way when he stands up and mills around, you know, you're just bumping your odds up. If he only moves 20 yards or 50 yards in daylight, the closer you are, the better, right? Mm -hmm. So I tried to apply that when I started hunting this new big timber setting, which is new to me, you know, like I really, I I guess I thought I was doing a lot of it, but I wasn't doing as much as I thought, I guess, you know, I did in college and then I did you know, like I said, at my grandpa's and stuff, but it's still different. Looking back on it, it's way thicker in those areas. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, we're in this super open stuff. And the problem that I was having, the mistake that we were having is in, in the story that we'd tell each other every time we get back from a hunt is, well, he was there and I spooked him. And it's like, okay, this isn't f- like at first it was like, oh, yeah, man, like we suck. Like, what are we doing wrong? And then, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, no, what are we doing wrong? This is like three years of the same story, and I'm tired of it. Like, I started getting super irritated because, like I was explaining last night, it felt like we were just, like, laughing at it and just being like, well, it didn't work. Move on. Do it again. And it's like, no, if it's not working, we got to change something. And I seriously couldn't figure out what it was until this off season, I went and I spent four days in February scouting open hilly terrain not areas that i'd hunted before just totally different stuff and i kept thinking to myself okay these beds are always where we think they are you know we pick a terrain feature on the map that for the wind and you know based off of all the experiences that we have finding beds and buck beds specifically it makes sense for them to be there now you have to have that knowledge by doing the scouting prior but you know again hunting different areas during turkey season and just in uh, and in season in general, off season scouting in general, over the years, I, f- I feel that that knowledge gained helps me anticipate where that bed is. So a lot of times w- when we guess where that is, we're right that there's a deer there, but it's a matter of getting into a position where you can actually hunt it and not just blow them out. Where the mistake we were making is We knew where he was or anticipated where the bed was, but we were just getting way too tight to it because we were fixated on a number. I want to be 150 yards from that bed. Well, this bed is a different bed completely than the Iowa bed, the central Ohio bed, the, you know, Nebraska bed, South Dakota river bottom bed, whatever. Those places have that thick cover. The buck beds, you can't see anything. These beds in this big monotonous timber, they're using a completely different defense, and that's the eyes. Yep. And that's something that 
paired with other experiences in other hill country spots, experiences out west where it's completely open like we talked about, where you can actually watch them bed and use that visual advantage, pairing all these things together plus the scouting that I was doing this offseason, I finally feel like I was able to wrap my head around the mistake that we were making. And it sounds, honestly, it sounds kind of silly, and I, I feel kind of silly that it took as long as it did. But when I look back on the success that we have had in these areas over the last few years, whether that's seeing deer or actually you know shooting a buck, it's always been a situation where we didn't push it or we used a specific route to get to the bed that's different than what we normally do. So let's break it down this way. In the past, I like to pick a spot on a map that I think the buck is at. And then I like to get there the way that I feel like I can be probably the quietest a lot of times. So a lot of times that is on the top. A lot of times there's an old trail there, there's, whether it's a deer trail, a illegal four-wheeler trail, or all of the above, like there's some sort of, or just a logging road. Mm -hmm. There's something on top a lot of times. So hunters have a tendency to access these ridges on top. It's so easy to just take the ridge in, and that's why I've had a tendency of doing it. And while I think I'm being quiet, I'm also just putting myself in a bad position because of getting skylined. And that's something that I think last year, about the time I started feeling completely frustrated at the bumping of the bed that we were targeting, I was realizing it's just like, man, it's, it just is as soon as you, I always joked like the, the top of your hat, you get that little button. It's like, as soon as that little button hits the skyline, boom, they're gone. You never see them. You just hear them run away. Yep. And it was like time and time again, we're making that mistake. So I think I, I had gotten so fed up last year that I pulled out and I left Ohio mid-season, mid-gun season, and I drove to New York to just do something different because I just needed a mental break. So I went there and got into the tracking thing and ended up going there again this year. And again, playing into you know the scouting and the experiences I'd had, I kind of wanted to just try some different stuff up there. It, it's freeing for me to go up there. I have no ties. I'm in new areas um, where some of the stuff that, you know, we've hunted year in and year out, I got these expectations and ties. And sometimes it's healthy for me. Well, not sometimes. It's always healthy for me to just go get a different experience because yeah. I have no expectation. Yep. And I just go do whatever. And if it fails, I don't care. Or if I feel like if I'm had a, have an expectation and I fail, then it, it hurts more, I guess. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So this year, Keith and I were in New York. This is just last week. And we went straight up a hill. I'll make this part quick because the learning lesson is, is pretty subtle. We were trying to cut a buck track. We had good tracking snow, and that was our whole um, mission was to track down a buck. So we are climbing. And we're kind of backtracking these old tracks going up the hill, but we're also going to where we would anticipate a, a buck bedding in hill country in general. These are bigger scale mountains than what we are to have been talking about, like in Ohio or what you would find in Kentucky, West Virginia, whatever. But nonetheless, 
it's still the same terrain features, just on a bigger scale, and we're headed that way. And all of a sudden, this doe fawn comes flying down the, the nose of the ridge, or like the finger. She's flying, she runs right past us. And it was one of those deals where at first it's like, oh, is she about to be getting chased by like three bucks, or... You know, she just playing around and she must have just been playing around. You know, the fawns will start just running and make circles. And I think that we just witnessed that. Well, right away, I was like, let's just backtrack her. So we start backtracking her. And as we're doing that, we start running into really fresh sign. But as we're backtracking, we're also going more and more on the side hill versus staying on the nose of the ridge or the spine of the ridge. We start to kind of cut in. And right about the time we hit another little side finger that juts out, we're continuing to backtrack this fawn all of a sudden, boom. I look up and like only 60 yards away tops, there's a, a, another fawn. And as I'm standing there looking at her, she's kind of looking down at me. And it's, I'm, I'm like, why are we getting away with this? Like, are these deer just dumb? But it's not that. And I'll circle back to that. She's looking down out there and I can down at me and I can tell that she can see something but she doesn't know what it is and Keith and I just freeze Keith's filming her I'm watching looking for other deer and all of a sudden she starts relaxing and I start seeing other deer a big mature doe steps out and she starts walking right above us and the wind is coming straight in our face from them to us maybe slightly quartered up the hill to our left and she's going slightly up the hill kind of uh, in front of us, but she's working right past us, just above us. She goes 30 yards past us, two fawns follow, and another mature doe follows them. They all walk within bow range of us, just standing in the open timber. We got no cover. Kind of it, on the bench. Kind of on the bench. But we're on the same level as them, more or less. They're slightly above us, but I would consider it on the same level. And they walked all the way around us, and finally that lead doe got downwind of us and smelled us. Game over. Normal. To be expected. But if I wanted one of them, we had them all day. You know, I could have shot them with a bow. Could have shot them standing, not even against a tree, with a bow. I know you could have. You could have so easily. Because, you know, at some point through that, they're walking, well, not at some point, like 20 times, they walk with their head behind a tree. There's your drawing opportunity. But with a gun, it would have been even easier. So... As I reflected on that more and more, I had mentioned earlier, it's like, oh, are these deer just dumb? And it's like, no, they're not dumb. And this is something that I've gotten better and better at from all hunting experiences, not necessarily a deer or a turkey or an elk or a pronghorn for that matter. It's all of them. As I'm mobile hunting, I'm constantly thinking now more and more and it's not something I've always done. I think it's happened more in the last like year is I'm looking what's behind me. What's behind me? Is it skyline from their perspective, from mm -hmm. their perspective or where I'm anticipating them to be. So for example, I was pronghorn hunting this August and I missed a buck, but he had no idea we were in the world and that's really hard to accomplish. Even from 300 yards out, it's pretty hard to make sure that they don't see you. Mm -hmm. But what I realized, or, or I, I guess I knew this was happening, but was confirmed after we went down and got the arrow and looked um, back up where we were. The sun was kind of setting behind us. And where we came up to be able to shoot over the little bit of terrain that we were using as cover, 
the sun was behind us and as the sun was going down, it was casting a shadow from a hill behind us down onto where we were. So his eyes were in the sun and we were down in the shadow with a backdrop of another hill. So when we popped up, there was no skyline happening whatsoever. We just disappeared straight into the hill behind us. Like our backdrop was perfect. Is that similar to that mule deer? Where was the one you missed? It was by a lake. Yep. Yep. Was that, that was kind of a South similar Dakota. similar yep. deal? Because mm-hmm. you got right in on top of that one. Same thing. When you look back, there's a hill behind you mm-hmm. versus just being straight skyline. And it's crazy. It's crazy that it has taken so long. Again, I feel it's kind of silly sometimes, but another example of this working two other examples and and again it's like we did it kind of by accident a couple times before i feel like i was really able to put words in in a in a in define a strategy on it is the muzzleloader hunt last year which we keep bringing up in our conversations about this so in the past as like a lead driver is what we call it, your main guy who's going to the X. Every drive that we ever set up in, in um, every drive we set up, period, we have an X. There's a spot that we think is the buck bed, just like any other hunt. It's the most likely spot for the buck to be bedded or milling around his bedding area. And a lot of times what we're trying to do is bump him out of there to the standards. And as this has kind of progressed and evolved, we've changed the mentality to a drive to, I like to work, it's still a drive, it's still a deer driving strategy, but I like to think of it as you put the people in positions to where they're catching the mistake of the main driver or the main hunter, right? So the main hunter, main driver, lead driver is the term I like to use the lead driver is going to that x his job is to walk in there and kill that buck he's gonna sneak in there or he's gonna jump him and jump shoot him at you know close range or he's gonna get a visual on him before he knows he's there and he's gonna shoot him that's his main job it's important for us in our context we're in this open setting Mm -hmm. that makes that possible right if you're in a cattail marsh that's Mm -hmm. not gonna you you can't sneak into yep. his bed and kill him with a gun. Yeah, so just that, to kind of reiterate what you were saying about those different kind of bedding situations, even though this is timber, yep. they're using this visual mm-hmm. and then we can use it in turn. Yep. And I think how your strategy would switch if you were doing a cattail drive or CRP or really thick stuff is you're still having that lead driver is trying to kill the buck first. The difference is, is it's not going to be the same look. It's probably going to be a jump shot. It's going to be he's holding tight and he tries to jump up at close range and you get a quick shot at him taken out, taken off out of there. You know, that's the, that's the strategy that I think you would use. It's still the same thing. It's just going to look a lot different if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, and in that thicker stuff, you're tightening everybody up. Your drivers are way closer. You know, they're moving, you know, through that specific bedding area much closer together that way there's not as many seams for them to get through but in the open stuff you keep your 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 drivers pretty old for the most part we choose to i don't know that this is always right but we choose a lot of times to space them out you know more like 100 150 yards from each other that way um 
you know, we can cover more ground driving because in this open stuff, they're way easier to spook. You know, you spook them from like two, three, 400 yards sometimes in this open timber where I wouldn't expect to jump a, a buck in a cattail marsh any further than 10 yards, honestly. Mm. Like you'd basically have to step on him and that's what your mission has to be in that type of stuff. But in this stuff, it's way more open. So you spook more deer from a distance. Anyway, last year, I, I, I guess I was the main driver. I was going through the middle of the bedding ridge and I was going to hit the main bedding spots. Like there was two or three spots I had found beds in the past and I was going straight to those one, two, three. And that was taking me straight up the, the mountain or the hill. Shane was coming in from my right, kind of containing from my right. Ben was containing from my left and we were pushing it towards a saddle on the other side of the ridge. So what I learned on this hunt was exactly the same thing that I was talking about a minute ago was the backdrop is everything. In the past, when I've done drives in similar spots, I would just come right over the top. And you're busting those deer almost immediately. As soon as the button of your hat crests the ridge, boom, they're gone. Because they can see on the skyline. They hear something, they look up, they're mid-slope. They can see the bottom, they can see the top. So it's pretty much foolproof. But this day, I decided to take a slightly different approach where I circled and like cupped the side hill to get in tight to them on their level versus coming over the top. And there's been other times that I've done it, but I wasn't doing it as on those other examples. I wasn't doing it consciously. It's just kind of how it played out with the wind and everything. But on this one, I started to just kind of more instinct. I didn't have anybody with me. I think that's kind of important. I just straight up went with my gut on this one. And it was, it was, it was so freeing to not have any, I wish I would have had somebody there to film it. Cause honestly, if you could have seen what I saw better than the GoPro footage that you have to see this hunt, which would have been, I think it's like the last second to last deer tour episode from last year. If you haven't watched it and you want to go back and watch it. But I, um, I, I, it was freeing because I just made the decision. I didn't think about it. And also as the lead driver, if you don't do your job, you have people to catch your mistakes and that, so you don't have any fear. You can be completely fearless. And man, that was such a fun mentality to have in that moment. It was like, I can't do anything wrong. And I remember climbing that ridge fast. I mean, I was moving. The time started that we had set, we always set a time that, you know, everybody's going to start to move into, you know, their final positions. The drivers are going to start and the time had started and I just started cutting up that ridge. And again, Instead of coming over the top, I'm staying on the side hill and I start to wrap my way into the bowl. And I had decided to take that exact approach because I felt like they would be on that side of the ridge just based off the wind. As I'm going up, I've got a wind coming from my left to my right. And I was like, well, I'll just go on the right side of this little finger to check the inside of this bowl first. And then I'll cut back into the wind if there's nothing there. Well, I never had to do that because as soon as I started to enter the new world, boom, I immediately saw white and I actually th figured it was a tail. Well, no, it was just him rubbing a tree and he had no idea we were in the world. I was in the world, me and my GoPro. <laughs> and How many yards down from the top would you estimate that that was? Uh, from the top top, I would say like, I would say probably a good hundred. 
hundred and hundred probably. Yeah, and what, give or take hundred and twenty five from the bottom. Yeah, probably. Maybe maybe even like hundred and fifty. Two maybe even 200. like two hundred. Yeah. So I guess technically, upper third, and I would also say, but at like the two third mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not mm-hmm. like just like upper third, like he's on top. Down Which, but there. we've seen that too, you know, but for the most part, it does seem like they're kind of mid slope and that can vary. You know, there's like two or three spots within that mid slope that they can be, they can be on the low bench. They can be the straight up mid bench or the finger. They can be in the bowl or they can be all the way up towards the very tip top which I've seen all of it. There's three different betting locations in that type of terrain that I see consistently. Now, on a bigger scale, there may be more. On a smaller scale, there may be, may be less. It's not to say that this is the only way that, you know, bucks bed in hill country. By no means am I trying to say that. I just, in this type of stuff, with this kind of, you know, really ridgy, tight ridge type stuff that are they're definitely tendencies there that are low mid and high in this situation they were just off of the mid point and they were down in that bowl and they were up on their feet moving because it had been pouring rain all day prior and it had just stopped and i think they were just feeling as good as i was feeling because it's no longer pouring rain on me it's like oh this is starting to get comfortable it feels good out here so they got up and started moving around and that was a good probably hour, hour and a half before dark. Now, I don't know that they were ever going to even leave that bowl in daylight. Could they see to the bottom from where you think that like you got that buck? Could they look in there and see down to that main creek bottom? Because people access their mm-hmm. bottom mm-hmm. and the top. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious. I think, that, I think that they could. I think the advantage that we had that day is that it had been raining. I think maybe more, though, e- even than seeing, they can hear a lot of days. I think if it's a calm, crunchy day... They can hear that bottom. So whether or not they run from here and you walk down there, as soon as you start coming up, they're going to hear it mm-hmm. just get louder and louder, and then they're going to start getting squirrely. But in this situation, we had perfect conditions to approach it. Um, I think you could still pull it off on a calm, crunchy condition. You just have to be a little bit more strategic, and, and we can kind of dive into that a little bit too. But I just wrapped around there, saw him. He was rubbing. I, I took another couple steps, and – it was so easy to do because in hindsight from where they were looking back to where I shot them, it was all just dark because what was behind me was the opposite ridge line. So I was covered. I had a backdrop. I had zero chance of being skylined. And because of that, I just blended in so well. I mean, they, they didn't stand a chance of seeing me. They really didn't. And the wind was perfect. And, and I basically just had to adjust to where I had a really solid, clear shot I was confident in and, and made the shot and got him. Then all of the other bucks, and there was like at least seven of them, just scattered. And they didn't really even know what had happened. And that, again, is pretty telling. Like, if you would have came over the top, you would have not even probably got the chance to shoot them before they were running. But to take it a step further and actually fire a round off. I pull off the tree that I was using for cover and I sit down and I'm scrambling around reloading. They still didn't see me and they were just standing right up above. They ran a little bit. And when he went down in the ditch, they just kind of stood there and looked around like what the heck just happened. And all of a sudden I realized that's going on and I take off and I run and I bump them again. And then they just really scattered. And like Ben had a couple nice, nice ones run past him, but one other small buck ran up past Tyler. He shot it, 
and then nobody else saw anything. So out of the seven that were left, I only managed to still bump three past everybody else. So that's telling me two things. One, my approach definitely was was bulletproof on that day for those conditions for sure. The other thing is is we need to tighten up the the standards and get them in more more of like a I think that's just it. Mm-hmm. A funnel. Yeah, more right. of a funnel. And that's something that we learned too last year. So because of that, that's kind of been a cr- progression as well. And, you know, again, I, I've talked about this a lot. Whether you do deer drives or not or you you don't believe in them or whatever, like I learned so much about all hunting by doing this. Because I even think of it like, what if I was bow hunting that day? I'm only 70 yards from him. Like there's a really good chance I shoot him with a bow still because there's still an hour, hour and a half left of daylight. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe in that situation, I pop up there and I grunt. And, you know, he comes down and he tries to circle downwind of me. If I was actually in that position, bow hunting, and I was impatient and I wanted to get him to me, and I felt like I couldn't cut him off or he wasn't coming my way, what I would have done is, is I would have grunted. And because that wind was coming from left to right and he was straight in front of me, mm-hmm. I would have grunted. And then I would have dropped back behind the hill, dropped down the hill, and then moved up again where I could see that way. If he tried to circle downwind of that grunt, he'd be coming right at me. That's my theory for how I would have played that if I was in a bow hunting situation. But I guess one other quick example is the one that I bumped with Ben and shot with the gun in similar habitat and terrain. It was the same deal. It was the same mistake we always made. We picked a bed, we bumped them right off that spot. And we watched him run away. Well, coming in from the top on that one? Coming in from the top. Exactly. Exactly. Same old, same old story. Come over the top. Boom. Bump him. The difference was, is when we made our next move, we circled around where we thought he went to. We basically picked another spot on the map that we figured he had went to. We circled with the wind in our favor, but similar to the one that I shot with the muzzleloader, we snuck in on the side hill and we used a backdrop. And that time I wasn't, I, I wasn't conscious of what we were doing as much as I was with the muzzleloader one. But looking back on it now, it's like that was the key to the success there because we were able to come in side hill and get super tight. We were able to get a hundred yards or probably about 150 yards from his bedding location, but we used terrain to hide behind it. So then when he fed naturally past us, he had no idea we were in the world. And that was another example of using a backdrop coming in on the side hill. And then fast forward to this year and the story I talked about in the New York thing with the does, that's another side hill example. And then also in the muzzleloader hunt last year on the buck that Hayden Hayden shot in uh, uh, the second muzzleloader video, which is I'm pretty sure the last deer tour video. That was a similar deal where we were more focused. There was a couple things that were applied here that I want to continue to apply in the future. We were using um, drivers on the top to get them moving. And then Ben and I were in a super important position where we were containment is what I like to call that guy. He's a containment guy. He's a driver, but he's also trying to keep everything moving forward towards the standards. So a lot of times he's trying to prevent the back door. If he does his job, he pushes them towards the stander or he shoots the buck at point blank as it drops and wraps back around the ridge. 
having that side hill covered is what we had on that hunt. Tyler and Brad were up on the top. They started getting the deer moving and the bucks wanted to double back, but Ben and I were there as containment. And while we didn't get a shot at them, I could tell they didn't want to go the way that we forced them to. They were reluctant to do it. They would run and they would stop and look back and like they were too far to get a shot, but I could see them up there. I filmed one of them stop and look back like, man, I really want to go that way, but you guys are standing right there. And then it dumped them straight through the rest of the drive right into the lap of Hayden and Shane. The other thing that we did on that, that was an applied tactic was we put more standards on a specific escape route versus spreading everybody out. Covering just acreage and yeah, trying to cover Which in theory, that makes sense. I think that's an easy mistake to make. It's something, a mistake that I feel that I've made a lot is, oh, we're just going to get more, you know, we can shoot 150 yards with these muzzle, 100 to 150 yards most guys are comfortable with with the muzzleloader. And, uh, you know, if we can shoot that far, then like let's space it out to where, you know, guys are 300 yards apart, 150 yards you know, each way they can cover that. Well, that's not realistic really when you're talking about a deer moving through. You're better off to have more, in my opinion, more openings, but have the really good spots covered really well. And that's something that we've kind of evolved to as well with other failed drives or just watching other deer escape, whether that's in a bow hunt or whatever. And then also the side hill approach. So let's, let's take this to like, a bow hunting situation and how I've learned about how I'd approach this differently if I was bow hunting because we've been focused so much on gun and in drives. So if I can pick a spot on the map that I feel confident that a deer's in, I'm going to approach that to where I can kind of circle it at a safe distance or, you know, be downwind of it in a safe distance. And if I see buck sign coming out of it, especially if it's fresh, I know he's there, but in the past, what I would do is try to go get right on top of it. Instead, now I'm going to use a side hill or some sort of other terrain in general to just keep that distance. And as much as it feels against what I've learned about buck bed hunting, it may be two, three, 350, 400 yards, but if he can see that far, you can't get any closer and you just got to be okay with that. And it's more risky. There's more room for them to get past you for sure. But if he's running away, there's no chance you're going to get him. You know what I mean? Or or I shouldn't say there's no chance, but like he's running away and you were going to set up on him being, you know, with the expectation that he's there and he's going to leave that spot. You're really just hurting yourself, I think. So I think in general, trying to use a side hill more because I don't think they can see as well. And also, um, yeah, just using that side hill, man, like that, that's huge to me. And I feel like all of a sudden it's, it's like a light bulb moment. Been approaching everything from the bottom or the top mostly. But then when I look at the success, whether it's, you know, a successful drive, whether it's a, you know, bump and dump with the gun with Ben or the muzzleloader hunt or this Adirondack hunt where we saw the does. It's like all those examples, or even when you walked up on the buck that was hit with Mike, what we've been talking about. These are all examples where 
the person that gets the visual is coming in from the side hill. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the deadly position, mm-hmm. basically. You're yeah. right. You're the best, the quickest way to actually get in there. It's just, it's, it's, I feel, I kind of feel silly because I feel like that's something that in, in other ways, in other hunting applications, I've known that to be true. I do it a lot in turkey season. I do it a lot in, you know, Western spot and stalk situations, but it's almost like you just have to be confident that he's in there and whether that's sign or just past intel, whatever it may be that gives you the confidence that he's there and just not push it to where you're just blowing him right out of there. You got to just get to right where he can't quite see you, smell you, hear you, and then just hold up. And then just got to let him make that move, especially from a bow hunting standpoint in most situations, especially in like a crisp, you know, frosty, calmer morning hunt or midday hunt or whatever it may be. If you get those calmer conditions, you have to step it back a little bit, which I just haven't done a good job of in the past. I want to be aggressive and I want to just get right in. I, I, I mean... Larry, every hunt I go on, I want to shoot a buck as soon as he stands up out of his bed. Like, that's what I want, but that's not always realistic, and I got to just be more realistic with it. But, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Oh, minus the one in gun week. I mentioned that Ben ended up bumping. Yeah. It's our kind of a final learning point. So, same area that uh, Zach's been talking about, this open open timber area, huge huge topography. Um now, I wasn't up there, and we've just kind of looked at it on maps, but Ben was kind of the guy that Zach's describing as, like, going to the X, the kill guy, and everybody else was kind of just playing defense, kind of covering the surrounding area. Well, we're pretty sure it was one in particular. We saw a mega, mega track going up to this spot, but if it was, like, a long ridge finger, this particular deer would have been uh, – he wasn't on the very top. You've been up on, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, middle ridge, as we mm-hmm. call it. it. Out near the nose, is it coming down in elevation? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't on the very top of the spine or anything. He was out kind of on that on the nose where it's a little mm-hmm. bit lower. But Ben was just coming down the top. And I guess if you think about it, he wouldn't have had – it was probably, the, like you said, the top of your hat kind of situation. Got eyes on a doe out there. Um, that particular area, there's been people on like all the other ridges. So it's just like one particular ridge. He Probably where he was, he could probably see the top. Mm-hmm. He saw where Ben was. He saw Ben straight up. And he could definitely take a couple steps and probably look down – kind of see the bottom or at least no one's coming up from the bottom on him Mm -hmm. ben was the kill guy and it just so happened that unfortunately ben ran into a doe spotted a doe out there kind of got fixated on the doe and there was obviously a buck with her Mm because our our gun week here it's they're probably locked down still just late late rut or a second rut doe or something Mm -hmm. like that but yeah same area except Zach, you were <laughs> this conversation we've had here. Had we uh, had all this right before, you know, if you were here for Gun Week, mm-hmm. we probably would have done it a touch different. But that buck slipped out of there. You know, he spotted Ben coming in from the top, spotted Ben and squirted out in an area where we had like all the sides pretty much covered and nobody else saw him except mm-hmm. for his tracks bailing out of there. I think that I say that had we had the, or you say, had we had this info last week, I don't, I don't know that I had put it together though. Like the conversation needed to happen one more time. Yeah. It's like we needed, (laughs) we needed to be in New York for that one little experience with the does. It seems insignificant, but that really wrapped up a lot of things that I'd been, I, I like to just, you know, 
start creating these theories and then just look back on past experiences. And had I not had that Doe experience, I don't know that it would have really locked it in as much as it has. And the mistake that I generally make is, yeah, coming over the top. Because coming over the top, you can see the most. It's the easiest to see down on those lower benches below you. It's super easy to see. Where as you come around on their same level, it's the same reason that it's hard for them to see you is the same reason it's hard for, harder for you to see them. The difference is we have binoculars. And something that you brought up the other day was your binocular use in timber. Talk about that because I know how I feel about it and how much I utilize it, but talk about your evolution of that real quick. Well, it just basically like what you're saying, we're picking these spots on the X and it's, it's the weirdest thing because we're hunting in timber, but it's like a open hundreds of yards situation. Mm -hmm. And you can see sometimes from one ridge to the other side and like now in hindsight with the buck over at my place, yeah, we can start checking that spot, checking that bed. And even this spot down, like where we're talking in Southern Ohio, this public piece now, did you even need binos to spot? I mean, you got so tight into that buck, the one you killed. You With the muzzle. You order. didn't even need binos. No. But that's what it usually is. You don't mm -hmm. usually need binos if you're taking, if you're getting in on them like that in that route. Especially if they're up. Yeah. You know. But yeah, it's, it's again, it's a unique situation. And I'm sure other people hunt open stuff like that and can relate. But yeah, you can go straight up glass into these little pockets before you punch in there. Because sometimes mm -hmm. I think you can, you can see into these spots like, you walk up there every step you're getting closer if it's crunchy or bad conditions i think you could use the binos to kind of basically get you in there before you totally punch in mm -hmm. if that makes sense before mm -hmm. you're spooking them yeah and a lot of times as you're approaching these it's like how i really specifically like to approach it is i stay low really low i try not to like have my body in a fully upright position I'm hunched down at the waist. My knees are bent a little bit, kind of an athletic position. If I'm gun hunting, I have my gun ready. If I'm bow hunting, you know, I have my release in my hand. And as I'm approaching, I'm keeping my eyes up to, to keep an eye on what's in front of me. And as soon as I start to see that new world appear, pump the brakes, stop, and then rise all the way up. And especially if I can get, you know, a cover the cover of a tree or like a downed tree right on that break of the terrain. Because if you do that and you slowly peek up and you get yourself up a little bit higher, now you can really see down in there and you're not putting as much sound right into that new world. You're still, you're like, we started calling it a long time ago when we were turkey hunting, sneaking and peeking. Mm -hmm. You sneak and then you peek. And if you have a little bit of cover, you know, front cover, back cover, you know, front cover being like a big tree that you're creeping up behind or a deadfall that you're creeping up behind and you're peeking over. And then you have the back cover of more terrain behind you, which you're only going to get if you're off the top, then there's a really good chance that if you take your time and you're making quiet steps and you're sneaking into these areas that, that you could really glass them up before they see you, especially late in the season, like you know, as the leaves fall towards tail end of October into, you know, the very end of the season. I think I, I just really like that style. And I feel like it's been so effective for me when I've done it, but I haven't been conscious of even doing it. And I'm just super excited now to continue to apply it. So moving forward, 
Um, today I'm going to go over and shoot my muzzleloader with my grandpa. And then I'm going to go to Indiana and I'm probably going to hunt hill country. And I'm excited about it because I feel like I'm going to be able to apply some of these strategies and just test it. Mm -hmm. And again, having a fresh perspective in a place I have zero expectation, it's going to be easy for me to just go in there, be aggressive, have no ties to it. If I mess it up, I mess it up. You know, it's just, it's just what it, the way it is. And I, that's exciting to me where I, I feel like by the time we make it to, you know, muzzleloader season for Ohio, we're going to just have more experiences. So like last night I did the classic go lay down after our conversation and I'm laying in bed and I start pulling up the map. And next thing you know, I'm looking at places that, you know, I'm starting to plan out drives for the Ohio Muzz. And then I'm like, hey, just focus on Indiana right now. Go jump over there on your map, scout that. Because once you get those experiences, that's going to tie into your strategy for Ohio. So it's like, take it one step at a time. I'm going to building blocks. Yeah. <laughs> because I know that this next week in Indiana is going to teach me a lot that I'm going to now apply. So like all these things we've been talking about, I can just, I have that theory. I go test the theory and see how much it works, how much it doesn't work, what little adjustments we want to make. And then how, when we have more people, we can, you know, apply it to like a drive situation. It's just, man, I don't know. I don't know if this is even any interesting to anybody at all, really. I mean, it sure is to me. It's been, it's been such a unique challenge to tackle this big open timber. It's and a common habitat type, like probably Pennsylvania. I mean, you said going all the way up to the Northeast. I mean, it's, it's very common. I mean, I, just the thing. places that I've turkey hunted, I can think of places that just look exactly like it. Like Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, New York, Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, Arkansas. Like I said, I've seen it on the map in Oklahoma, Texas, Minnesota, Wisconsin. I mean, shall I keep going? Yeah. You know, it's like it's everywhere. Yeah. It's like hill country, big woods, and, you know. It, all the all those things get a little bit easier too when you get a little bit more you know dense habitat or just better habitat where you've got like native shrubby grassy habitat too to where they can't see as much all those strategies it, that we're talking about they get easier to apply when when the deer has more cover because they just can't see as much like the visual advantage of a deer has actually proven to be pretty tricky I find it easier to do out West when I can see them because I have the confidence to just do it right. Where if I can't see them, I don't always have the confidence to do it right. And I don't trust my judgment. And then I just, am like, well, I better just go over the top because that's going to be the easiest to see them. And then I just bump them. Yeah. You know, that's the mistake. <laughs> that's the trend that I'm seeing. And it, it, it was comical for a while. And then it started to get really frustrating to where I started like getting, irritated and I was like I need a mental break and you know this last year I've kind of just been trying to chip away at learning and taking all experiences from you know every hunting style every hunting uh, location and every species too like this isn't just learned from just deer hunting it's learned from turkey hunting as much as anything oh, and gosh, then yeah. pronghorn you know western whitetail mule deer elk you know it all 
applies. It's like you start to take these experiences and you just keep building on them and looking at what worked, what didn't. And that's just where we're at with this, I think. And it's been really fun to be talking to Larry the last couple of days about it because, man, I feel like both him and I just feel like we, we learned a lot just by talking through it. Yeah. I mean, I know I do. Oh, yeah. Because your experience helped me, experiences yeah. helped me a ton, too. Yeah. There's a challenge there that draws all of us to it. Mm-hmm. I, it as much as it pisses us off sometimes, <laughs> yeah. there's a challenge there that I think we're putting the pieces together. I mean, the results are obviously improving mm-hmm. and seeing what's working and that, yeah, we're making like gains on it. Mm-hmm. Definitely gets old. We'll always need a, a break from that open timber <laughs> stuff. That is not going to ever change, but it's still, it's, it's fun. And it's somewhere for like all of us, it's pretty local. It's a local mm-hmm. option. There's some big bucks there and it's mm-hmm. cool that in that habitat bucks are getting big. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of the stuff we've talked about kind of alludes to why, because think about every other, you know, Dickie Mo coming mm-hmm. down those ridges or whatever they're doing in there. Well, and the other thing too is that's exciting about it is for me, while it's local, there's, you know, there, if there's ever a year or a certain point where there's too much pressure in some of those areas, which I mean, for those listening, keep in mind that if you're going to make your annual trip to Ohio or make, start making trips to Ohio, so does everybody else. I mean, I'm on, I'm just going to get that out there. There's other places that are just as good. The reason that we hunt here is because it's like you said, local for us, but like, yep. The exciting part to me is, is if we ever hit a point where it's like, okay, it's, it's frustrating because of pressure, which I, 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 it continues to grow every year. More and more people go here because it's an over the counter place. There's tons of other over neighboring over the counter places that we can just keep going to like in applying the same strategy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like I said, I just named a whole list of places and there's, you can do it anywhere and everywhere that that terrain is there. And that's, that's the part about it too, where we're learning about it in these local spots more or less, but it's still the same strategy when we make that trip up to New York. It's still the same strategy that when we make another trip in a new location, you can still take those experiences and apply them. But yeah, man, I, I'm excited moving forward. I think next week's going to be a lot of fun and yeah, we'll see what we can come up with. But any final thoughts? I think we got it all. Look, cool. Yeah, I hope look forward to Muzz and seeing what happens this year with that. Yeah. And just hearing how your hunt goes, yeah, the next next fourteen days or whatever. Yeah. Ten, fourteen days. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hopefully we didn't uh wear you out with Hill Country talk, but it's just always on the mind. Thanks for listening.